JB Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 61 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, we're talking about AI-driven industry identification with Alan Ringwald from Relativity 6. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that is transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific technologies that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. All right, all right, all right. Uh, it's another wonderful summer day uh, that we are recording this. Uh, we do not have our uh, James Benham, our esteemed uh, founder and original host. Uh, you're stuck with me, the co-host, and uh, I'm very excited. So this is the first time I get to read the intros and outros. So for you loyal listeners, you'll notice that there's a change there. Um, so uh, hopefully I do it as well as James. And uh, he always starts with the R, all right, all right, all right. So I, I have to uh, give you the, the tribute there, James. Hope you are doing well. We will hold the fort down uh, as I'm sure you're enjoying uh, a wonderful summer in uh off of Lake Michigan. Uh, but I'm excited today uh, for our guest, Alan Ringwald from Relatively Six. And Alan and I have crossed paths a, a couple of times on a couple of different continents. So it's great to uh, finally have you on the podcast, Alan. How are you? Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. Doing well. Um, checking in from sunny and uh, wildfiery Los Angeles. Excited to chat with you today. Yeah, I, uh, of course, with all of the travel restrictions now, haven't left the beautiful state of Texas in over a year, but uh, LA was actually where we were planning to do our family vacation last summer before everything kind of uh, collapsed. So I definitely hope to sure. to get back out there again soon. And uh, we're having very un-Texas-like weather here. Uh, we're talking with uh, our producer, Jim Greenlee, right before we jumped on that uh, it's been raining here. Usually this is the time that it's uh, sunny. It's like a broken record, I guess, a little bit like LA where we don't get the rain for like three months. Typically, it's hotter here where it's the, the only question of the weather is whether it's going to break 100 that day or not. But it's always in the 90s. We're kind of hanging out in the pool and we've been struggling to break yeah. 80s. And, you know, I don't think that I would call this a marine layer where I'm sitting in San Antonio because we don't have a, a body of water close by, but it's, it's kind of felt like that. So it's been uh, very strange. Uh, before we get started with our interview with Alan, don't forget that you can subscribe to the InsureTech Geek podcast by texting geek out to 66866. That's geek out to 66866 and make sure you never miss an episode. So back to Alan Ringwald from Relativity 6 and for those of you that, are, again, are loyal listeners of the podcast, you know that uh, we'll be talking all about Ellen's startup and who Relativity 6 is, what they do. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about their evolution because Alan and I have, have been chatting about that. And, and as I mentioned, we've connected uh, at points kind of along this journey. But before we do that, uh, we always like to get to know a little bit about our guests in terms of their background. So as James would ask, you know, give us your background, where are you from, where did you grow up, and what did you think you were going to be doing? And I'm <laughs> going to guess it was not being in the insurance industry. No, it was a pleasant surprise to to me and everyone around me, actually, that, that I'm here right now. But yeah, long story short, I'm a Boston guy, so I grew up on the East Coast. 
kind of a wanted to do like entrepreneurial stuff. It's I know it's cliche, but like, you know, as a kid, you kind of know when that's kind of your path. So growing up in Boston, I had a snow shoveling business, of course. I was selling candy to kids in, in my like elementary school. It was just like all those little signals of, oh man, this guy's probably not gonna uh, be able to work at a company uh, one day. So like, you know, had that progression growing up and yeah, like got myself into uh, entrepreneurial thing like for real like right when I was a a freshman sophomore in college I just I just couldn't wait so I just like right 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 off the bat went out and started my first actual company um it was funny it was absolutely nothing to do with insurance it was actually you know I was sitting there in my dorm room and realizing just how many different uh delivery services and services in general all my you know all the kids around me were, were using and realized there was no centralized system for that yet. This I'm dating myself, but this is, you know, 2000, 2001. So that like e-commerce really hadn't been a thing. Platforms really hadn't been a thing. So I went out and built a platform that connected all like the laundry vendors, food delivery vendors in my college town to actual students and kind of cut, caught the bug there. It's one of those like classic, cases of your first startup uh, does well and you think it's easy kind of a deal. Like we, we grew really quickly, grew to 15 schools within like, like a year and a half. I sold the company, like was able to pay for my college education from it. It got me my next job. So I was like, oh man, like this is, I could do this, like no problem. So, you know, and I sold the company when I was 22. So I was like, you know, pretty sure I knew, I knew what I was doing and boy, was I wrong. But yeah, so I started there, <laughs> spent the next five years at Google, actually. So it was kind of like my first corporate experience. Um, and this is Google, again, dating myself 2006, right? So 06 Google, you know, had just gone public, was kind of figuring itself out. I kind of liken it to like a, a teenager going through puberty kind of a thing, like growing like crazy, <laughs> not really sure like what to do with your limbs kind of a thing or like. So kind of I was around for the explosive growth, which meant was cool because I got to do a million different things. So was still very entrepreneurial in that sense. But literally, like every week, they're hiring thousands of people. And so like you, the layers of bureaucracy just increase, increase, increase. So, you know, five years in, I was I was kind of ready to, to leave. But um, what happened was I got a phone call from and, and this is I moved to San Francisco for this, but I got a phone call from. This guy in Boston who said, I'm going to I, I, I'm so upset by the way that um, uh, corporations are, especially like in the confection industry, like what they're doing to kids that, you know, they're feeding them corn syrup. It's awful. Like there's so much poison out there, but it's marketed in a way that makes kids want it. Could we build a brand um, and, a, and a confection company that competed with Snickers, Reese's M&M's, but was very sustainable, like sustainable ingredients, like good for you stuff, like actually add fiber to Snickers type bar, like crazy stuff like that. And he convinced me to quit Google. And within like a week, I I moved back to Boston and, you know, started this, this candy company, um, which was a really kind of interesting experience. Um, Did that for about two years. We actually grew to 30,000 stores. So we got into a lot of locations. It was my first experience with celebrity and celebrity branding and all the crazy things associated with with that whole world. Because uh, what we did, our, our strategy was, instead of having a huge marketing budget, we tried to get as many, I guess, famous people as possible to be a part of the brand uh, for discounted equity. It was kind of the, the idea. And um, it was just a really interesting way to go about it. It did not do well. 
for a while. <laughs> we raised, yeah, kind of, a, kind of a nightmare. We raised a lot of money. We got into a lot of stores, but the second we got into the store, nobody bought the product, which was a whole different lesson. But you know, had to learn through that. So, can you give us, yeah, yeah, some of those celebrities? Absolutely. So, I don't I'd know say if you can name drop not, here, but I can, and I'm, I, I feel horrible doing it. It's not me whatsoever. Uh, I don't know any of these people personally, by the way. So, it's not, it's not me being cool. But like, honestly, like it started with Tom Brady, and Tom asked his wife to join. Giselle, Giselle happens to have an ex-boyfriend named Leonardo DiCaprio, he joined on, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like Matt Damon came to Walmart and pitched for us. Uh, Giselle went to Target, like Tom Brady went to CVS. Like it was like that. And like, you know, you bring a celebrity into a room and, you know, into a CVS buyer, it helps. It helps. <laughs> so um, that was kind of the, the the strategy and we got distribution. The thing we didn't realize was uh, the battle actually starts when you get into a store. There's so much competition. You really need to do a lot of marketing and awareness before the consumer steps in. You can have all the great placement in the world, but if no one's familiar with you, then it's harder. And this is at a time when social media was not a thing, really. It was YouTube and a little bit of Twitter, but we went digital social, but it was a little early actually. So, but totally crazy, random experience. I didn't last too long there, uh, left after two years and a really interesting thing happened. So we worked with a lot of, like you said, like celebrities, a lot of professional athletes. There was one athlete who was on the, like on the roster that, you know, became, became friendly with, not a huge name at the time, but he was a, a, a player on the New England Patriots, a wide receiver, really nice guy. And he was basically like, you know, he came to me and he was like, look, like, uh, you know, my agent doesn't really do much for me on the marketing side. You know, no one really knows who I am. Do you want to do something? Like, is there anything you think? And so like that, it was a really interesting uh, moment because that started a company called Super Digital, which what we did there, the core insight was even if you're not Tom Brady, if you're a starting wide receiver on, you know, on a national football league team, you probably have seven or eight, nine million people who do know who you are, who care who you are, but you need to, and this is cliche because it actually is what the world is today, but created unique platforms for this player to connect straight to the fans. Because at the time he was, you know, he was getting, you, you would laugh at the money he was getting from his, um, from his traditional like a shoe deal. It was nothing. So going from that to, you know, exponentially more and and having a community and building and monetizing was, was novel at the time. And, uh, you know, everyone does it now, but that, that's what I did. We built a roster of athletes. So I did that for a while, about two and a half years, and then decided to go off to, to grad school. I went to MIT, um, which is a place I'd always wanted to go, always admired from afar from Boston, but you know, literally didn't even know anyone who went there when growing up. It's just not not a thing for for normal people like me. But had the opportunity to go there, and that's how I started uh, Relativity Six. And apologies for the long winded uh, intro there, everybody. But that's me. Yeah, and it's great, Alan. And and I think people love hearing these stories. They love hearing that uh, various backgrounds. I. I'm feeling very, um, you know, imposter syndrome a little bit because, uh, you know, I was at uh, a carrier this whole time. Like, so you're having all these amazing career experiences and I'm going from, you know, Rob, you're a senior legend. underwriter to eventually managing the team. So yeah, it's, it's like, uh, wow. You know, the, the diversity of experiences that you had is, is pretty amazing. And it, it feels like Alan, one of the threads is that you were really early on to things, right? I mean, the, the, the delivery experience you mentioned college bellhop, right? The, the, the 
Unreal Candy and kind of influential marketing and then super digital, like all of these were in a lot of ways kind of ahead of their time, right? Which are common, I think about DoorDash and Grubhub now and everything. I mean, you just needed a, a pandemic, right. I guess, to really probably go <laughs> exactly. even, even bigger. So um, yeah, just uh, a, a really uh, amazing, uh, I guess, uh, timing and kind of prescience on your part for your career in, intentionally or, or, or not. Unintentional, no, not, so, not on yeah, purpose. Yeah. Unintentional. <laughs> take take full credit take full credit everyone else would um you're such a, a a modest guy alan tell me a little bit about so you mentioned you know eventually right you you end up at mit uh for your grad study get your mba you're an entrepreneur in residence and then relativity six comes from there so maybe you can share a little bit about the genesis of uh of relativity six yeah absolutely you know i was always excited about MIT just because of the level of talent, the people that they bring in there. It's, it's incredible, honestly, the professors, the students, all that. So knowing that coming in, I kind of spent the most of my time. Yes, class was important. No doubt. I did go to most of my classes, but I spent a lot more of my time meeting people, making friends, and not just with students, with professors, just having conversations, having coffee, like really exploring. I kind of saw it as like, you know, I'd been in, in the field for so long. It was It was pretty like pretty heavenly to be able to like sit in a classroom and like talk to people and explore. So it's the ultimate luxury if, if you can do it. Um, I, I got a lot out of it. And that's where I met my, my co-founder, Abraham, who's this brilliant data scientist. We got along like immediately. He's also an entrepreneur. We kind of, we, we connected on that level and we ended up nerding out on, of all things, uh, you know, one minute, I'm, you know, doing Tom Brady stuff. Now we are nerding out on lifetime value, um, LTV, as a marketer, as a product person, it's the holy grail. You know, it's something that everyone talks about at nauseum, right? Like, you know, executives love to talk about it. Everyone loves to, marketing people love to talk about it. Salespeople love to talk about it, but it, it's very rarely actioned or accurate, right? It's kind of one of those like nebulous kind of topics. So we wanted to take that on. We thought LTV was broken. And Abraham being a great data scientist, we thought, could we apply machine learning to this problem in a way that actually added value? It's kind of like the theme of, of a lot of the stuff that I do is like, is it cool? And does it add value? And if it's not both, it's probably something you shouldn't uh, be spending your time on. So so it's always like, cool, like LTV is really interesting, but where's where's the value out of this, right? Like, can AI ML add value to what we're doing here? And we built a platform. And um, honestly, Rob, like based on all this other startup experience, I did not want to get into another one. I really didn't. Like, it's too hard. It's too uncertain. It's like too many challenges. And a lot of times not enough reward, really. Like, um, you hear about the, you know, if, if you're not in it, you hear about the, the success stories, but in it, you, you see all your colleagues not have success a lot of the time, but work harder and be more talented than anybody else and still not make it. So, so I didn't want it, honestly, but we wrote this thesis um, and man, like I'd never gotten such a great response from companies than when I was researching this topic and seeing if we could be helpful here. And, you know, right in school, we had huge companies give us all their data, like, you know. 20, 30, 40 years worth of their transaction data to try to help them figure out LTV a little bit better. So it was like, wow, you know, it was a really interesting thing in writing this thesis with with Abe, my co-founder, and then seeing the reaction got us excited that this was a real problem to solve. So probably shouldn't have, but went for it uh, at the time. You know, you, you have student loans and you probably get a job, but it did not do that. 
um, took that road. And yeah, we, we had this LTV platform. What it did was predict retention, like the propensity for a customer to, to, to stay a customer and also the propensity for a customer to buy more stuff. Basically, like simply put was the expression of the platform. Didn't start in insurance. Our first customer ever was an aircraft manufacturer, uh, aircraft OEM, um, actually got us our first huge contract. We beat out a lot of big companies to get it. So it was kind of like a huge moment right when we started. And it, you know, it started and that that win got us the the first angel investment. So it all kind of started going from there. And we went out to market with a, a lifetime value platform. We worked in a lot of industries. Two years into the company, we found uh, this company that I'm so sorry, Brent, uh, for saying this. I'd never heard of Willis Towers Watson. It's obviously it's a huge broker. But, you know, from not being in the space, I was like, oh, cool. Like these guys want to work with us. And those were the guys that like sat us down and said, like, you have no idea how valuable LTV is for the broker world, the insurance, like insurance, the carrier world, the broader insurance world. Let me teach you the ways. So they were kind of like our Jedi masters of like teaching us everything about insurance, building a product specifically for Willis Towers Watson. So it kind of got us momentum in insurance. And then we spent year, uh, two years just working with carriers and brokers with LTV. And that, yeah, and I can stop there because it's uh, the story does change um, from that spot. But Sure, I, I want to get to um, some of the, the pivots that you've made along the way. But I, I you know, just quickly, um, uh, to yeah. reflect on, I remember actually trying to tackle this problem at USA in 2008 because not only did they have the insurance company, but they had a bank and an investment company. And so you're looking at people, right? They're maybe really profitable credit card consumer, right? But then they keep having losses on the insurance side. And, you know, USA customers relative to others are just phenomenally loyal, right? Because you've got this affinity with right. the, the military. And so cost customer acquisition costs kind of amortated over the life of the customer is just pretty uh, amazing. And um, I know it influenced like underwriting decisions that we were making. You mentioned you know, being in Los Angeles uh, and some of the the wildfire threat that you face. And, you know, it's pretty remarkable looking at some of the statistics to say, hey, I'm not just underwriting their wildfire risk today, but I'm actually underwriting their wildfire risk 30 years from now because there's a 50-50 probability right. that that same customer is going to be with me for 30 years. Most companies don't think, you know, that far out. It's it's pretty uh, right. remarkable. And uh, I am curious, you mentioned, obviously, Willis Towers, Watson, mm-hmm. you know, huge uh, broker, very, very well connected. But uh, I, you mentioned both on the, the kind of the agent broker side and the carrier side. So mm-hmm. maybe you can tell us the difference as you kind of discovered both and and how did they, because I could see that they might mm-hmm. view lifetime value and, and how they perceive their customers differently. I'm curious to see, yeah. hear your perspective on that. Yeah, no, totally. And when I went into this, I, I didn't even know the difference between it all. And whoa, was I like, you know, it's, it's a whole world uh, in there. With you know comp- complex relationship and all that, I'd say like, but even like putting that aside, like the broker carrier relationship, Willis was really, I think, honestly forward thinking. So they kind of met us on the same level, which, which going back was very rare. It's kind of similar to my like, ex- like success with uh, my first company ever. My first experience ever in insurance was with Willis Towers Watson. It was extremely positive. It was ex- like they're on the same page. Yes, they're brokers, so you'd think like they wouldn't care as much about a lot of the things that that we brought to the table. But in their case, so they were working with small business. So this is back in 2018 before, you know, small business, everyone's talking small business. They knew small business was a core piece of their business. 
they had, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a couple small teams focused on these small business accounts. And it's grown a lot since, um, since they've leveraged our, leveraged our technology. But the problem with small business is everybody knows it's fickle, right? It's, it's hard to predict the behavior of a smaller company. It's much easier to, to know what Lacoste or Coca-Cola is going to be doing, but the mom and pop could be transitioning, could be on the verge of going out of business, could be there. There's a lot of, lot of variability in that segment which is why they brought us in. They said, we, you know, we don't have as much of a hold on it as we need to. So we need to bring in some advanced technology to actually start predicting when these smaller accounts have a propensity to do something. And not only are they going to, when are they going to leave, but what else can we do to, to make their lives easier? Like what's the next best product that, that actually makes sense in the right moment in time, not just when our boss thinks that we should make more money. So like they were truly about serving the customer and they took it from that perspective and they understood the challenge of this before we got there, which I think is the rare piece because, uh, you know, in my experience, everybody wants to talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning, but they don't want to talk about data cleaning because that's not fun. And they don't want to talk about operationalizing because that's also not super fun. They just want AI. They want to predict. But Willis actually understood the whole picture and they took a longer view, right? Uh, a lot of a lot of the companies I work with now or have in the past they want it you know they want it quick they want it perfect but they don't even know why they want it really um so a lot of a lot of my job has been talking people out of working with us if you can believe it um when we were doing the ltv work because it's it's a huge commitment and if you're not willing to commit like you're not going to see a result and we're going to look bad as well so yeah so i'd say they really they really were prepared for us at a time when a lot of others were not yeah i um I can only imagine, right? It, it, so I know folks have talked about lifetime value, but it's always been, I guess, a little bit more, right, theoretical. And, and I remember um, at some of the, you know, conference events that we were ran, ran into each other. I think you know, beginning in 2019, and and you know, your pitch is is being compared to a lot of other startups that are out there and their pitches. And you know, there's just going to be like you know, a new revenue stream, right? A new product or new class of customers, right. or you know, efficiencies, right? So you're going to help, you know, uh, reduce expenses operationally or, you know, fraud detection or things like that. And and here's this, the kind of loan guy. I mean, the good news is, right, nobody's necessarily directly competing with you in this lifetime value space. The bad news is right. like, it, it feels like it's out of left field relative to, you know, that value prop that everyone else is is pitching. Totally. And so, you know, you kind of have some competition in the marketplace on, on, on that. So, and, and I would imagine too, that, the view of AI and ML to solve problems like then versus now has got to be, you know, quite different. So, you know, you mentioned the data sets, right? 20, 30, 40 years of data, like A, and I imagine that's got to be pretty messy to your point about like data cleansing and all that. Do you need that much data? And, and, and how did people, I guess, think about your technology then? And how has that perception maybe changed over time? Yeah, it's night and day. But you know, it's never been a lack of enthusiasm. Like I got into all the rooms and you know, you know, I went to all the conferences like that, you know, I'd run into you somewhere in the world, you know, like we I was there because they were excited, right? Like everyone's excited about like, let's bring this advanced technology to what we're doing, because it'll solve things, it'll fix things. But the reality is, you know, we're just a tool, right? Like you have to know you first you have to, if you don't have the clean data, like to your point, like even 10, like five years of data is can take a year to clean because, you know, at a large carrier, 
talking about like a huge, huge amount of customers, a lot of transactions. And, and, and there's like, a, honestly, Rob, there's like a truth to where AI is at the enterprise level today, from my perspective. And it has nothing to do with predictions. We're like, we're not there. Like, we're not in the prediction era yet. Like, we talk about the prediction era, and that's where you see the presentations. The money and the action and like where it all is today is actually the data engineering side, like the data cleaning, like the data understanding, the data organizing, this concept of a data lake is newer to the insurance space, but it's kind of like table stakes for AI where the idea of the lake is, it's just this really large repository of your data that's clean that you can that you can pull out at any time that you can actually do machine learning on quickly so that you can see because to do ML well, it has to be real time. It has to keep moving. You have to always get better from your mistakes. And without a lake, like you're doing it on lags and it'll never, ever be as good as if it's real time. So that, you know, one example of an infrastructure problem. So like, that's really where AI, it, it's not fun. It's almost like a, a, I use the analogy of a restaurant where it's like the front, there's the front of the house and it's like, and it all looks great. And everyone's like, you know prim and proper and then the back you know the kitchen is a, it's a mess right like and that's where this really is if we're in that messy kitchen like we're on the line we got to clean this data we got to put it in the right place because if you don't do that so what happened was you know we you do you know the the carriers and, and the brokers are, are off they're rushing off to do pilots but they're not thinking like how do we structure this correctly now and then how are we structuring ourselves for success after and so so long story short you know back then and it's still today, like there's this huge rush to innovate and use cutting edge technology. If it's not AI, it's crypto, if it, you know, whatever, like it's what's the next flavor that's going to help me. But if you're not holistically thinking about the problem and how to solve it in a valuable way, then it's a disaster for us, the startup and for the champion and the carrier. So, yeah, so it's changed a lot in that there's. You know, there's still enthusiasm, but now a better, you know, there's been more scars from bad experiences, but it's still just the reality check is we're not as far as people think we are. And AI as a term, I think is really dangerous. I think, you know, being more specific is better, but, you know, I've had to learn this over the years of actually like failing a lot with, with a lot of these companies. So. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, they always talk about, right, this, uh, the hype cycle, right? And then you hit this trough of disillusionment and then over time, right, you actually <laughs> eke out some, some hard won gains and it kind of proves out over time. So I, I'm interested, uh, Alan, so obviously, right, AI and ML has become really big in the insurance space um, and it can be applied to a number of different use cases, not just lifetime value. And I know you uh, at Relativity 6 have kind of ventured into some of these other uh, use cases like industry classifications and others. So maybe you can just talk about, you know, I hesitate to call it a, a pivot really because it's really just enabling additional use cases. So how did you come across those and and what are the types of problems that you're solving today at Relativity 6? No, absolutely. And uh, I know industry classification does not sound exciting uh, when you say it, but it's actually really, really interesting. So here's what happened is uh, COVID hit. Uh, those conferences went away. Um, so Rob, we weren't seeing each other in Australia or wherever random places, right? And um, right. actually, a lot of the the energy that we had around you know, that carriers had around innovation 
did go away for that period of time, right? So like we weren't as busy with the projects as as we'd had been in the past. So we spent the time to really dig in and and like to your earlier point, try to really understand what's going on with brokers and carriers and like, you know, what are some what are some common themes that we're seeing here and have seen over the years and how can we apply our technology in a way that can be used where we don't have to fly out and meet with a customer? We don't have to take their data. We don't have to like go through a 12 month procurement process. Like what, how do we, how do we change things up a little bit based on what we've already built? And we kept coming back to this idea that the insurance industry has a really hard time understanding what a business actually does. And that creates a lot of havoc um, without within the whole value chain. So, you know, simply put, the concept is an agent or broker at the time when they're, they're talking to, a, uh, let's say, a small business insurance prospect, they ask that customer, what do you do? And right there, that actually biases everything because, the, you know, the, the customer, will, the prospective customer will say something, but it might not be actually what matters from an underwriter's perspective. So the broker doesn't really, you know, isn't going to, you know, triple check, quadruple check that they're going to take it, give it to the carrier. And then, you know, now the underwriters and now the onus of the underwriter to go in and, and check all that. And it sounds simple, but man, it's hard. If I gave you five business names and addresses and told you to match them to the six digit NAICS code, that's most likely related to that company, that could take you some time. Like that's not a simple ask, actually. Um, and one of our like little secrets within our LTV platform is always classification. If you don't know what a business does, you'll never be good at understanding a lot of things about their, their lifetime value. Right. So we've always had this technology embedded within our platform, but we realized that it was so valuable to take it out and API it and make it its own offering after spending so long in the, in the industry. So that's kind of what we did. We, we, we created an API that, you know, you take a name and address of a business. And we'll find, um, you know, through our platform, through a lot of semantic analysis, right? So we run it through our natural language processing engine to understand the naming conventions. We'll search the web based on the address. We're looking at all the, like, not, not only just the metadata, but we'll go into all the websites and start reading paragraphs, contextualizing, looking at images, Google Maps searching, all these. We put it in our data lake, which has about 6 billion external data points. Um, this point we've been building it for years and what we output is a, a really accurate quick way to detect what uh what a company does um so it's a it's a classifier with over a thousand variables um which is uh, really cutting edge and, and difficult technology but more importantly than all of that it's really valuable to, to a carrier mainly so we focus on commercial underwriting specific small businesses where the value is really seen Again, like we all know what Lacoste and Coca-Cola, like what they do, but uh, that mom and pop store could be doing a lot of different things. That carpenter could be jumping on the roof, fixing something. The, the barber shop could be serving whiskey to, to, the, to someone while they're waiting. And that could be something valuable to know. But it's only on a Yelp review from like, you know, 2016 that someone said the whiskey here was good. So there, so it's, we finally found a spot where we're adding uh, a lot of value. We have an API, so it's very quickly uh, integrated uh, and, and useful, and we no longer need 10 to 40 years of historical transaction data to, to, add, to do our jobs and add value. So it's been exciting. You can call it a pivot. You know, it, it totally is from a business model perspective. I guess the caveat is from a tech perspective, it's something that 
we've just been building since we started the company. We just had no idea, not being in the space, that it was something that on its own could be so impactful. Yeah, I love that story, Alan. And I've seen this a lot actually during the pandemic where companies have, I would say, you know, one or more core capabilities, but they've really rethought, right? Like, how do we deploy that? What is our true expertise? And, you know, I've seen like, you know, companies that have hardware offerings, but they're able to push new software upgrades, right? That kind of enable that hardware to do more right. and, and, and things like that. So I, I just, um, I tell people that when I talk to founders, like, uh, and I'm always just amazed, right? Having never really been a a founder myself. Um, so I, I'm uh, uh, always uh, so respectful of, of those like yourself that are really taking the jump. And, and I appreciate you uh, being very candid about some of the the risks and even kind of knowing, right, as you started uh, as, you know, uh, relatively six as a co-founder, like, you know, having gone through the highs and lows before, right, as a serial entrepreneur. And, and you know, it, it's the same with writing a book. People ask about a second book. And I'm like, well, I know how much effort and time and effort the first one was. So it actually <laughs> makes me maybe a little more good. Right. To write a second one, but the problem, like any founder, I, I don't care, and I've talked to hundreds, right? Maybe even thousands by now. I don't think once when they've articulated the basic problem um, that they're trying to solve, I don't think I've ever once said, you know, that's actually not a problem. <laughs> like that works fine mm -hmm. today, but it's the solution, yeah. right? And uh, how do I solve this or what is the challenge and, and, and how do I create a viable business out of this that, you know, whatever you go in with, I don't think I've ever met a founder that they got it right first time off the bat, no challenges, yeah. no obstacles, no, no twists and turns. Right. And so it's always a journey. It's always a, um, some hard earned lessons learned. And I, I think relatively six is, is no different in that, but I, I, I mean, I, I applaud you for kind of, you know, um, both the innovation that you've done from the very beginning, but then also kind of recognizing that there's, you know, different ways to kind of deploy capabilities. And, you know, you've still got that tech core, right, which is enables everything, but it can be applied uh, in different ways to solve different problems within the insurance industry. Um, so just kind of wrapping up, I'm I'm curious, like, how can people find you and, and you know, what's, I guess, on the horizon for Relativity 6 uh, now that we're kind of getting out of our, our pandemic funk here now that in-person events are starting up and, and obviously you're able to interact with more. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts for kind of, you know, what the, the future looks like in the next one to three years. Yeah, no, uh, A, excited for in-person events. I actually found out this week, so totally off topic, but I actually haven't been able to walk all year. I've had a problem with my leg, but I finally like figured out what it is. Uh, I have a torn labrum, so I'm getting that stitched up. And I will, yeah, be stitched up and ready to go for uh, for Vegas uh, for the for the big conference course. Um, so yeah, no, excited for all the in person stuff. I think it really matters, even though we have an API and you never have to talk to me ever to to see value in what we do. I think it's so <laughs> there is there is a people element even to a, uh, like an API business, a data provider business. It's still really important. Use cases matter a lot. There's, there's always reason to do that is what I found, which is cool. Um, you know, I thought that might go away, but yeah. And then, you know, in terms of like other ways, like would love to connect with anyone. Uh, my email is alan at relativity6.com. 
always go to our website, always down to talk to anyone interested in, in, in learning more about this. And yeah, I mean, the future, but in terms of just the future and where we're headed, I think it's, it's the discipline to stay away from the buzzwords, I think is the key here. Like, yes, AI is valuable, but what does AI really mean in the context of underwriting and the context of you know, a lot of different things. I think the the carrier and broker counterparts are getting much savvier than they were just even like 2017, 2018 in how to interact with these companies. Um, so I, I honestly think the future is bright, but the caveat is there does need to be a reality check of what's feasible and what's what's not. And, you know, everyone does need to do a better job of kind of getting on the same page and, and investing, um, not just like, not just like, you know, in e-commerce, like you can try a million different things and like fuck them in and out as you go. But in insurance, it's, a, you know, there's a longer cycle. You have to like work a little bit closer with your startup counterparts, I think. And, you know, the behavior is getting better, but there's always room for improvement. I think I'm really excited to see what we can do. I think moving forward, I think everyone's got the energy um, to go back and do it now that that we're uh, reemerging. And yeah, the po- positive outlook, Rob. That's awesome. Injury definitely time to right get that that healed. I know my wife's been dealing yeah. with some uh, knee issues and been kind of limping and and struggling oh. to get around. And it looks like she's got some surgery in her future that she found out this week. So um, I, I definitely appreciate but it's yeah it's it's it, you don't like to do it but on the other hand it's like you know you'd rather get back to where you could be rather than kind of being half of uh you know what you're able to do so uh good luck on that and it's been great to uh catch up here for our listeners i've got a, a couple news items this week that i want to wrap up with uh the first one uh comes to us from the insurance journal and this is kind of exciting uh news we'll see what comes of it that seven major cyber insurers have formed uh, a company to coordinate cyber analysis and uh, have risk mitigation. So with cyber attacks, as we know, we've talked about previously on this podcast and insurance claims on the rise, leading cyber insurers AIG, Axis, Beasley, Chubb, the Hartford, Liberty Mutual, and Travelers have formed a company to pool their data and expertise and take collective efforts to enhance cyber risk mitigation efforts across the industry. So this new entity is going to be called Cyber AccuView. I, I don't know if I uh, like that name, uh, Alan. Your thoughts on, on a marketing? I know. I think we should. Uh, it's we should do good. a branding workshop on that one. But anyways, yeah. Yeah, I'm not loving the name. But what do you think of this idea? Yeah, I think it's necessary. I think there's, you know, there's a bit of flying blind with all this stuff. There's, you know, it's being led by uh, a lot of perception. I think for years, you know, companies have done really well with these types of products and. But, you know, I think it is coming to a head a little bit. And these companies understand that they're getting in front of it. They just need more data, right? Like there's not enough information out there, clearly. Like this is a reflection of that. So I think it's like, it's an interesting signal that carriers are getting more serious about it, but that it still hasn't, clearly it still hasn't been figured out, which is interesting. Like that as an entrepreneur, that sounds like an opportunity, honestly. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of uh, chatter on on Twitter and elsewhere just about insurance's role in a lot of these ransomware attacks. And are we now enabling right this bad behavior by offering these types of solutions? So there's some mm. ethics and and you know moral aspect to it. And I know um, this government has certainly encouraged a little bit more sharing uh, uh, among parties. And so it's uh, it's definitely a, a difficult challenge that is, is not going away. The other uh, item this week for news, uh, this comes from uh, our friend, Dr. Robin Cura, who we previously had on the podcast, uh, an article that he wrote for the uh, Insurance Innovation Reporter, is insurance missing out on the crypto opportunity? So 
Um, I encourage you guys to go check out that piece and uh, would love to, to hear your thoughts on this. You probably you know, heard all about the, the, the crypto mania. We've seen you know, the crackdowns on mining in China. They're actually coming out with a central bank digital currency. And I uh, read a book uh, by Richard Turin called Cashless. It's all about that effort, which was quite uh, fascinating. So I recommend that read. But uh, I personally am not uh, interested in, in crypto. I actually read The Kings of Crypto, uh, which is about Coinbase as well, which is an excellent book. So I love the idea of crypto. I don't like the roller coaster of crypto. I'm very interested in the central bank digital currencies. And uh, I, I know that uh, some companies have, have said they're going to start taking premiums in in, in Bitcoin and others. So yeah, I heard that. curious your thoughts, Alan, where do you stand in the, the crypto world? What are your what are your broad thoughts here? No, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. Like you said, it, it's really, really interesting to see companies actually accept premiums in Bitcoin or, or whatever it is. But it, it, it's kind of like AI, honestly, it just it feels like the same story, right? Like a lot of hype, a lot of people talking about it. Where's the value and how is it implemented? And like, you know, I see a lot of I see a lot of pain uh, ahead if you try to try to implement without really like holistically understanding what the tech does and how is it actually going to like help the operation or help your customers, which is not as exciting as just thinking about crypto in general. So I'm like apprehensive. I agree with you. I'm not a huge like crypto head. Uh, I try to kind of stay away because of all the volatility, but it is incredibly interesting. And I think it's it's just going to be a long time. It's going to be a, take a lot longer than people think. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's utility in some of these. I'm very interested in Ethereum and smart contracts. And, you know, they were even saying with the central bank digital currency that has the ability to um, actually implement negative interest rates to where your your money in your mm. crypto wallet could uh, decrease in value over time if you don't spend it. And, and so anyway, there's a very, or they could be limited to what you could spend it on and, and kind of avoid some of the- I need that criminal activities and things like that. So yeah, right. Yeah, we all need a, a little bit of a budget, yeah. but you can't spend it at the fast food. You've got to only spend it. This, uh, money on <laughs> exactly. or something. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about that, but I, I definitely think there's uh, some intersections with the insurance world and kind of look forward to, to hearing listener thoughts. And I'm sure it's a topic we will uh, come to often as the uh, we have future episodes of the podcast. Well, with that, I want to thank uh, again, Alan Ringwald from Relativity Six. It's so great to uh, catch up with you. Uh, best yeah, wishes thanks, uh, for now the rest of the year. And hopefully we will be able to see each other in person in Las Vegas. So we'll have to make sure that that happens. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Rob. And uh, thanks to all of you out in listener land. Uh, this has been uh, Rob Galbraith flying solo this week. The InsureTech Geek podcast is powered by JB Knowledge at jbknowledge.com. It's all about technology that is transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your solo host uh, this week, Rob Galbraith at InnovInsurance.com. You can find my esteemed uh, co-host, James Benham, at jamesbenham.com. Uh, thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, and Kara Dalton-Aro, who's our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today in listener land. I look forward to talking to you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.